Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we copyright your brain for weird and wonderful science. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Professor Matthew Rimmer talks about intellectual property and COVID vaccines. First up, here's news about the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. Oxford AstraZeneca, significantly more dangerous, but still worth taking. Researchers in Denmark and Norway have found that the risk of venous thromboembolic events, blood clots, from Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccination is actually 110 events per million doses, rather than the 4, then 8, then 16, and lately 32 in a million that health authorities like the Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation have been saying. The researchers strongly emphasise that it's less dangerous to risk clots from the vaccine than to risk dying from COVID-19. The team studied the medical records of 280,000 people aged 18 to 65 who received a first dose of the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine in Denmark and Norway in February and March 2021. They pulled out reports of heart attacks, strokes, deep vein blood clots and bleeding events that people suffered within 28 days of receiving a first vaccine dose and compared those with expected rates in the general populations of Denmark and Norway. They found 59 people vaccinated with the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine had blood clots in the veins. In the population over that time, 30 would have been expected. This means 11 excess events per 100,000 vaccinations or 110 per million doses. This is different to the reports from some countries, like Australia and the UK, where they've only counted blood clots from thrombotic thrombocytopenia or from cerebral venous sinus thrombosis, and carefully ignored any other bleeding or clotting events. This means the numbers in this study are more inclusive, which is why they're higher. Basically, they found all clotting and bleeding went up, not just thrombotic thrombocytopenia, and cerebral venous thrombosis. Cerebral venous thrombosis is a potentially fatal blood clot of a cerebral vein in the brain. They found a risk of 25 cases of cerebral venous thrombosis per million doses, which is 20 times higher than in unvaccinated people. In comparison, COVID-19 causes 43 cases of cerebral venous thrombosis per million infections. That's 25 per million caused by the vaccine versus 43 per million caused by the disease. They found significant increases in pulmonary embolism, 34 extra cases per million, and other venous thrombosis, 22 extra cases per million doses. Intracerebral hemorrhage was higher at 17 extra events per million. Surprisingly, they found people who'd been vaccinated were less likely to die from any cause compared to years past, but they don't know why. 
it could simply be that more healthy people were choosing to be vaccinated because in Denmark and Norway, it was mostly healthcare workers who were vaccinated with Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine. The Danish and Norwegian researchers stressed that people are three times more likely to die if they're not vaccinated. So people should not wait for supplies of other brands of COVID-19 vaccine to be delivered if they're being offered Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine now. The governments of Denmark and Norway have banned the use of Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine after the publication of the report, but they have plenty of alternative brands of COVID-19 vaccines. The Australian Technical Advisory Group on Immunisation restricted their limited stocks of Pfizer, which is free of clotting risk, to people under 50 years old when they believed it was a risk of four clotting events per million doses. That was the level they chose to act on. The facts about clotting risks have gone up since they made that decision, so why hasn't their policy changed when the risk doubled, quadrupled, octupled, and then went up three more times? The study was titled Arterial Events, Venous Thromboembolism, Thrombocytopenia and Bleeding After Vaccination with Oxford AstraZeneca in Denmark and Norway, population-based cohort study, and was published in the British Medical Journal on the 5th of May, 2021. You're listening to Ian Wolfe on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Medical Patents Matthew Rimmer is a Professor of Intellectual Property and Innovation Law at the Queensland University of Technology Faculty of Business and Law. I spoke with him by Zoom and began by asking him, are intellectual property rights slowing down the manufacture and distribution of COVID vaccines and drugs? Well, you know, there's been a long history to debates over intellectual property and access to essential medicines. You know, the current controversy over access to COVID vaccines is just the latest in uh, age-old conflicts over access to critical health technologies. So if you kind of cast your mind back to the 1980s, there was the sudden appearance of a new infectious disease, HIV-AIDS, um, there was a patent race at the time um, between a French group led by Luc Montagna and an American group led by Robert Gallo. There was lots of competition and rivalry. In the end, President Ronald Reagan uh, had to resolve with his French counterpart the patent ownership in relation to HIV-AIDS diagnostic tests. And lo and behold, later on, it was revealed that the American research was dependent upon the French re research. The Nobel Prize was awarded to the Frenchman and his group and not the American. Then in the 1990s, as the HIV AIDS crisis became much more pronounced, those issues really became critical life and death matters. So Nelson Mandela's government in South Africa sought to obtain generic medicines from India to combat the HIV-AIDS crisis. 39 of the world's largest pharmaceutical companies then sued Nelson Mandela's government for breaching their patent rights. Such was the public backlash 
that in the end, the drugs companies withdrew their action. And there were a number of decisions that were made in terms of the international rules around access to medicines. And, and I'll just kind of mention them because they're kind of quite important to our current situation. So the TRIPS agreement, trade-related aspects of intellectual property, is part of the World Trade Organization system. That was established in 994 with the kind of the resolution, the conflict between the South African government and the pharmaceutical drug companies. There was the Doha Declaration in 2001, which recognised that member states could take action to distribute patent medicines, particularly in times of public health emergency and urgency. The 2003 WHO General Council decision enabled the export of pharmaceutical drugs overseas to those countries that lacked local manufacturing capacity. Really, those debates have really continued since those agreements were reached. So we've often still had a lot of debate about access to HIV, AIDS, medicines, but also debates around um, tuberculosis and malaria. But often that system has had to deal with the arrival of new infectious diseases. So the SARS virus led to quite a few conflicts over patents, feeling a bit of deja vu in the past year. I wrote a paper back in 2004 over the race to patent the SARS virus. But other infectious diseases like avian influenza, Ebola, the Zika virus have kind of raised questions in that field as well. Sometimes the private pharmaceutical industry has not been so focused upon so-called tropical diseases or neglected diseases. There has sometimes been problems of underinvestment in infectious diseases, particularly those that kind of affect the wider world. So those issues, I guess, were in train before the SARS virus has kind of took place. With the COVID crisis, prior to the COVID crisis, we had another effort by the United Nations to try to resolve some of these conflicts and disputes. So the last UN Secretary-General, Ban Ki-moon, gathered together his kind of council of elders to try to find a way through. So Ruth Dreyfus, the former president of Switzerland, chaired this kind of committee. The Honourable Michael Kirby, who's played a big role in debates of access to medicines in Australia, also participated in that high-level panel. That panel made a number of different recommendations about the need for nation states to make use of flexibilities under the TRIPS agreement for there to be a greater use of open innovation, open access, open health, and other such measures. And there was a need to build up transparent, accountable, and substantive public health institutions. And, and that high-level panel report also kind of warned against some of the dangers of pushing for higher and higher standards of intellectual property protection, TRIPS plus or TRIPS double plus standards. Unfortunately, the United States government at that point and also some of the pharmaceutical drug companies and biotechnology companies resisted the adoption of those recommendations. So I guess that is a bit of a historical overview of some of the battles over intellectual property and access to essential medicines. 
with the outbreak of the coronavirus with COVID-19, we saw all those issues percolate up again within a new context. And really there has been a race to develop vaccines, to try to develop you know, some sort of measures against the COVID virus. But there's also been a lot of interest in relation to the development of diagnostics and treatments. And there's also been a bit of discussion about um, personal protective equipment as well. So there have been lots of very desperate needs by nation states as they kind of respond to the coronavirus crisis. In some ways, we've seen some very fast, quick development of new vaccines, but there has been a lot of debate over the intellectual property ownership of those vaccines. Many of the vaccine developers receive very significant amounts of public funding for those vaccines. So that has made the situation rather kind of complicated. We have seen some particular dynamics over the past couple of years. There's been a concern about so-called vaccine nationalism, where nation states try to procure vaccines for their own nation state, sometimes at the expense of other nation states. Uh, and certainly that has been a bit of an issue and a bit of a problem it was very evident with the Trump administration pursuing an America first policy in relation to Operation Warp Speed, as it was called. But the Trump administration had a very American-centric vision for trying to deal with the situation of the United States first. But obviously, I think a number of other nation states, even though they have sometimes publicly professed the need for a global response, have sometimes engaged in vaccine nationalism themselves. So a number of European states, I think, have covertly engaged in a bit of vaccine nationalism. And there's been a bit of debate as well about some of the other developed countries. At the same time, I guess there's also been a concern about companies monopolising intellectual property related to COVID technologies there's been a great deal of concern about profiteering by vaccine developers, diagnostic makers and other producers of treatments and even kind of personal protective equipment and other medical supplies as well. There's been concern that holders of intellectual property have been charging prices that have been unaffordable for many nations and many communities. There have been a number of different responses to these problems around vaccine nationalism and corporate profiteering. The World Health Organization tried to set in place a number of different institutions to try to ensure that there was manufacturing and distribution of medicines around the world. So the ACT Accelerator was established to try to help accelerate the development and distribution of vaccines, diagnostics and treatments. They have sought funding for the various different pillars of that new international institution. They've received some commitments from some countries, but they haven't necessarily received the funding that they have needed to properly distribute medicines under that system. And I guess compared to their ambition, 
things have been kind of going quite slowly in some respects. There still remains many vaccine shortages around the world. Often some of the developed countries have obtained procurement deals ahead of the World Health Organization's COVAX project, and that has been quite problematic. There have been a range of different intellectual property proposals to try to overcome some of the intellectual property barriers to access to COVID technologies. The government of Costa Rica proposed CTAP, which would assist in sharing intellectual property related to COVID technologies. And that was a kind of a very enterprising proposal that was supported by the World Health Organization. Unfortunately, though, many vaccine developers and biotech companies and medical diagnostic companies have not wanted to participate in that project. And likewise, it doesn't seem that many nation states, particularly those with their own intellectual property resources, have been willing to participate in that voluntary sharing mechanism for intellectual property. Uh, The medicines patent pool was established to share patents, particularly those related to HIV AIDS medicines, they have said that they're willing to kind of play a role in terms of providing access to COVID vaccines and medicines. I'm not sure that their offer has necessarily been taken up. There have been other sorts of proposals as well. So the Open COVID Pledge has been established to allow intellectual property holders to pledge not to take action uh, against IP infringement relating to kind of COVID research. Uh, A number of IT companies, a number of public research organisations have taken those pledges. But again, we haven't seen the main medical and biotech companies take those pledges. Uh, There's also been a lot of discussion about public sector licensing. So the student-run Universities Allied for Essential Medicines has led a campaign to free the vaccines. Some organisations like Stanford University's licensing system have tried to put in place mechanisms for flexible licensing. So that's been another option. There's also been a push by Oxfam and UNAIDS for a people's vaccine, for material to be placed in the public domain so it's open accessible for all. So it's in that context that we then had a debate over the need for a TRIPS waiver. South Africa and India have been the key sponsors of the TRIPS waiver, although a number of other countries have since also supported the proposal. So they put forward this proposal back in October 2020 uh, within the World Trade Organization, um, which manages the TRIPS agreement. The proposal was to really suspend a number of aspects of the TRIPS agreement during the COVID crisis particularly some of the provisions related to patents, trademarks, copyright and designs. There'd been a lot of debate about the nature and the scope and the duration of the TRIPS waiver. The TRIPS waiver was supported by a number of developing nations and um, particularly some least developed nations and some civil society organisations like MSF as well. There are a number of countries that were quite undecided about how to respond to the TRIPS waiver and they asked for further information, and they raised questions about whether there needed to be further evidence as to 
whether intellectual property was actually kind of creating real barriers in relation to COVID technologies. But there was also some opposition from a number of developed nations and another mid-range nation, Brazil. So the United States, particularly under the Trump administration, the European Union, Japan, a number of other developed countries like Australia and New Zealand and Canada, but also Brazil and the Bolsonaro government objected to the CHIPS waiver and suggested that that would undermine the intellectual property system and the incentives that it had in place for the biomedical industry. They also kind of questioned whether it would resolve some of the issues in relation to the COVID crisis. With the new Biden administration, there was a reconsideration of the US position on the TRIPS waiver. So President Joe Biden has been around for a while in respect of United States politics. And obviously he could recall what happened with the Clinton administration. So Bill Clinton and Al Gore, president and vice president at the time, initially supported the effort by the pharmaceutical drug companies to challenge Nelson Mandela's regime in relation to access to medicines for the HIV AIDS crisis. And no doubt Biden remembered the great public backlash against such a position by the United States. You know, AIDS activists famously took over some of the events by Al Gore. You know, Biden was obviously kind of concerned that there could be a very similar backlash if he took a hard position against the TRIPS waiver. I think Biden also wanted a very deliberative decision-making process in his new administration. I think he was very concerned about the very arbitrary and capricious decision-making that went on uh, during the Trump administration. His press secretary said that Biden wanted to get down into the details of the pros and cons of US positions in relation to the TRIPS waiver. He wanted there to be a proper debate and consideration of what steps they could have. The Biden administration was also really keen to shift from the isolationism of the America First position of the Trump administration and re-engage with multilateral institutions, particularly the World Health Organization, but also the World Trade Organization, the World Intellectual Property Organization, the United Nations. With the vaccine rollout going very well in the United States under the Biden administration, really there has been a great consideration of the need to help with the global rollout of vaccines. The crisis has really reached tragic proportions in key jurisdictions like India and Brazil. You know, India is normally the pharmacy of the developing world. And at the moment, India is really struggling to deal with the demand for COVID vaccines domestically, let alone the the rest of the world. You know, Brazil has also been kind of enmeshed in a deep COVID crisis and, and has had a very intransigent government that hasn't responded very well to the crisis. There does seem to be major distribution problems with COVID vaccines. There, there doesn't seem to be a diversified enough range of manufacturers of vaccines to then distribute them to various kind of regions. So... 
as a result of those considerations, the Biden administration said that given the emergency of the COVID crisis, there was really a need for some emergency measures. The Biden administration didn't fully support the TRIPS waiver put forward by South Africa and India. They instead supported a somewhat narrower TRIPS waiver for vaccines. So as we kind of talked about before, there's a wide array of COVID technologies affected by intellectual property other than vaccines. So there are diagnostics and treatments and personal protective equipment. But the Biden administration seems to have agreed to vaccines being subject to a TRIPS waiver and any intellectual property related to the TRIPS vaccines. So that might be not only patents, but it could also be trade secrets or copyright or even trademarks, um, potentially. So Ambassador Tai noted that, you know, the Biden administration still had a great deal of respect for the need to protect and enforce intellectual property. But in these particular circumstances, there was need to take important action. And really, I think that position had also been promoted by a number of members of the Democrats in the United States Congress. So Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders and other prominent progressive Democrats had pushed the Biden administration to take action on this issue. But also the Speaker, Nancy Pelosi, had been very vocally advocating that the Biden administration take such a position. You know, the Biden administration has has been very dependent upon a broad coalition of support to beat Trump in the presidential election. So I think that might have also been a factor. That was the first part of my discussion with Professor Matthew Rimmer from QUT about the battle over medical patents and how it's affected the fight to save people from HIV, SARS, flu, and now COVID-19. Listen next week for part two and hear about how the nations of the world have responded to the latest decision by the US government to promote sharing the intellectual property of COVID-19 vaccines. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please like the Diffusion Science Radio page on Facebook and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8 C in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2 NVR in Nambucca Valley, 3 MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com and check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. 
make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick. Everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.